Welcome to Mafia, a new podcast telling stories of America's criminal underworld. Gotti assumed the position of head of the Gambino family. And using the name Donnie Brasco, I was able to infiltrate the uh, Bonanno uh, crime family in New York City. Bugsy Siegel is an American mob legend. One man changed the whole texture and landscape of crime in America. Listen to Mafia every Wednesday on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your favorite shows. 15 seconds. Guidance is internal. 10, 9, ignition sequence start. Space nuts. 5, 4, 3, 2, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. Space nuts. Astronauts report it feels good. Hello again and welcome to Space Nuts, the astronomy podcast with me, Andrew Dunkley, your host, and from the Australian Astronomical Observatory, Fred Watson. G'day, Fred. G'day, Andrew. How are you going? I'm quite well. And you? I guess quite well is as good as anything, really. It's better than horrible, really, isn't it? So, <laughs> yeah. 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 Yes, fair enough. So far, so good. Now... Now that we've got the uh, pleasantries out of the way, uh, down to business. And we've got a few things to talk about today. Uh, the return of a Soyuz capsule, which has brought back astronauts from three different nations. Uh, we're also going to uh, look at the possibility that um, Uranus has more moons than we think it does. And it's obviously a greedy planet because it's already got 27 that we're aware of. And some strange things happening around uh, Saturn's North Pole with, um, with, with the change of colour up there, which is it's just so very odd. Now, I'm going to give you the choice, Fred. Where do you want to start today? Uh, look, let us just um, get quickly out of the way the return of the Soyuz astronauts, uh, because um, this is not, you know, it's not big news in the sense that it's a pretty routine gig at the moment uh, with um, uh, crew changes on the space station uh, every every four to six months. Uh, so the space station currently occupied by six astronauts and cosmonauts. Um, and um, what they do is they send a Soyuz spacecraft up and change the crews, uh, as I said, every four to six months or so. Uh, so um, back in, uh, well, it was uh, actually the, the, very, uh, the very end of... Uh, uh, very end of October. Where are we? What month is it? Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. It's November <laughs> now. <laughs> the very end of October, uh, there was a successful landing, of course, uh, of, a, of a Soyuz capsule in Kazakhstan where they come back. Uh, they always land on, on the ground, uh, as, you know, in contrast with the, the US uh, space, uh, human crewed space capsules like Apollo that came down in the ocean. Anyway, um, three uh, astronauts, one from the United States, one from Japan, and uh, the um, the commander of the space station at that time was from Russia. Uh, 115 days up there, a typical length of time on the ISS. Uh, the reason why I thought this was worth talking about is that um, the, uh, the Russian gentleman, uh, Anatoly Ivanishin, I think that's his name. Uh, I don't hope he doesn't vanish because yeah. he's clearly a very uh, <laughs> he's clearly a very <clears throat> eloquent and um, and thoughtful man. Um, basically, he he said when he did the change of command uh, ceremony, there's a little ceremony that they have when one commander hands over to the other. Hmm. He said, "I'm kind of reluctant to close the hatch." Um, the time is very special here. I didn't really have time to know what's going on on our planet, and maybe it's for the better. 
on the space station you live in a very friendly very good environment and that's um, you know really reassuring to hear given the the sort of tensions that we're seeing in geopolitics here on earth it is very nice to hear that in the space station uh, there aren't any uh, that the that the mission continues the guys work together and uh, everything is done on a completely collaborative and friendly basis. It's very refreshing to hear that. Yeah, it is. And I suppose it's understandable. They're all like-minded people. It doesn't matter where they come from. And you'd, you'd feel the same thing, Fred, uh, in astronomy. There are astronomers from all walks of life. Uh, but you all have the same mission, if you like. You all have the same focus. You're all trying to learn more about why we are here and what goes on in the universe, what makes the solar system tick uh, and and when you get together, it doesn't matter where you're from. You're all talking about the same thing, and I suppose it's the same for astronauts. Yeah, I, I, I think that, I'm sure that's true. Uh, you, you're quite right. I mean, um, astronomy is uh, interesting because, of course, it has no immediate practical benefits uh, in terms of any kind of strategic things, or 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 usually not in terms of any you know, industrial or manufacturing possibilities because all our attention is firmly on things that are actually billions of light years away often. And I do remember, you know, at the height of the Cold War in the in the 1970s and 80s, um, I communicated with Russian scientists. We had common interests. Actually, I communicated with them about the design of telescopes and things of that sort. Once again, telescopes built to, to, to glean measurements from the, the depths of the universe rather than do anything uh, that, that is related to geopolitics. So you're quite right. The, the international boundaries were extremely low at that time and I think continue to be today in the scientific world. Now, you said that 115-day uh, mission on the International Space Station is stock standard. That's, that's still a very long time to hang around, isn't it? It, yes, that's right. It's kind of four months. It's, um, I mean, the, uh, I guess the, the standard duration was expected to be about six months. Um, it seems to be a little bit shorter at the moment. Uh, so a crew change every six months was what was expected. But they're, they're I think, turning them over a little bit more quickly. Um, uh, I am not sure why that is. Um, things will change probably next year, Andrew, when... Uh, when SpaceX starts using its um, its uh, manned spacecraft to, to fly uh, up to the International Space Station. Uh, and so we'll see the end of this complete reliance on Soyuz, which we have at the moment. Um, that will change things, I'm sure. But it still, I hope, uh, means that this, this uh, collaborative environment, the collegiate environment that there is up there, will, will continue. Yes, I, I, one would hope so. The last thing we need is a Star War. Exactly. Or exactly. The likes of. Hmm. Um, very good. Uh, okay, Fred, we might um, move on to the next topic. Uh, you're listening to Space Nuts with Andrew Dunkley and Fred Watson. Zero G and I feel fine. Space Nuts. So next up, Fred, let's uh, let's head off to Saturn. And there's uh, some strange things that they've observed on Saturn, particularly around the North Pole. Uh, there's there's a there's a strange coloured shape. It's hexagonal and it's usually blue, but now it's not blue, it's turned gold. <laughs> this is all very strange. Uh, indeed it is, Andrew. Uh, I think this is one of the, the quirkiest aspects of our exploration of the, of the environment of Saturn and its moons. Um, it was discovered, I guess, uh, it's probably 
getting them for a decade ago, um, by the Cassini spacecraft, uh, which is currently in orbit around Saturn, uh, that there is this strange structure near Saturn's North Pole. Saturn, like Jupiter, is a gas giant planet, so we don't see a solid surface. What we see is the top layers of its cloud belts. Now, Jupiter's cloud belts are much more prominent than Saturn's, and that's because the, the sort of ambient temperature at Jupiter is a bit higher than it is at Saturn. Saturn's, of course, a billion and a half kilometres away. It's much further away than Jupiter. And so it's, it's um, surface, it, or the temperature at the top of the cloud belts is, is lower than on Saturn, and, sorry, than on Jupiter, and that means that the clouds basically form lower down in Saturn's atmosphere. So we don't see the same sorts of structures. Uh, we see them, but they're, they're more subtle, put it that way. Mm -hmm. um, what was discovered, though, by Cassini and has been followed up many times, in fact, you can actually observe it from Earth um, if you've got the right kind of equipment and it's the right time of year. But around Saturn's North Pole is this very regular hexagon feature so if you sort of look down on Saturn's North Pole, what do you see? You see a hexagonal shape, the same shape as, shape as the cross-section of a pencil. Um, it took scientists quite a while to figure out what was going on here because hexagons are not something that crop up all that frequently in nature, although, of course, we do see them in, um, in, in beehives, uh, in the, the shape of, <clears throat> of, bees, of the cells that the bees make. And we see them as well in, in the structure of columnar basalt, those strange formations of rocks that are almost perfectly hexagonal. Yeah, there's that um, famous saw... um, water feature down in Tasmania, the tessellated pavement, I think, um, hexagonal right. shaped rock, which is very unusual. Yeah. And, and likewise, up in, in Northern Ireland, um, I was there a couple of months ago, the, the Giant's Causeway, which is a a very uh, large uh, outcrop of column, the basalt. So, yes, hexagons do turn up in nature, but not usually this big, because this hexagon is big enough that one one side, one of the straight edges of the hexagon, is actually bigger than the Earth. So <laughs> this is quite large-scale uh, hexagon. Why do you get something like that? Well, the thinking is that what you're seeing is, is that the polar jet stream of Saturn. Um, we have something similar on Earth, a jet stream around the two poles, hmm. uh, and its behavior varies with the weather. It seems to control the weather quite a bit. But on Saturn, this jet stream, rather than being roughly circular like it is on the Earth, has this hexagonal shape, which is thought to be due to kind of resonances, some sort of uh, what you might call a standing wave being set up within the hexagon uh, or within the jet stream. So it forms this curious hexagonal shape uh, due to, you know, just due to the, the way the winds um, uh, react with the, the, the path length that they've got uh, going around the planet. So the hexagon is, is very stable, but what's changed, as exactly as you've said, is that it has changed colour. Um, when it was first observed, um, um, the earliest images that show any colour date from about 2012. And that was not long after Saturn passed through its equinox. So that's the, the equinox was in actually in 2009. Uh, and in 2009, that means that 
uh, on Saturn, the day and the night were basically the same length, which means that you, you don't really see very much of the poles. Before that, the North Pole had been shrouded in darkness, passed through the equinox in 2009, and is now approaching the solstice. I think actually Saturn's summer solstice, if I remember rightly, is uh, it's actually in May 2017. Um, and what, what has been noted uh, since 2012, so the four years uh, since uh, November 2012, the, the hexagon, the interior of the hexagon, the sort of shape which is bounded by the hexagon, has changed colour uh, from a, a, a rather deep blue colour to this golden colour, a golden yellow colour that's um, really very, very different. Although I do note on the images that I've seen uh, that there is still a, a trace of blue in the centre of the hexagon. There's a kind of blue spot in the middle. Mm. Why is this so? That's the question. Well, that is the big uh, question, obviously. Yeah. So what we've got, what has changed? Well, the season has changed uh, on, uh, on Saturn. So basically, it's the northern spring. And um, as the uh, as the temperature has probably increased near Saturn's North Pole, and remember that um, at the top of the cloud belts on Saturn, the temperature is about minus 180 degrees Celsius. So it's it's not a balmy spring of the kind that we're used to here on Earth. Mm. But it seems to be that the springtime has produced um, has affected the the way that um, these suspended particles, what we call aerosols. Uh, in the atmosphere has been produced so that there's maybe more aerosols being produced uh, because of reactions, chemical reactions that involve uh, the atmospheric contents and the increased sunlight falling on them. Uh, so, it, it, you know, it's really very interesting stuff and not, we don't really understand it fully, but that is the best guess at the moment as to why this colour change is taking place. So it's a change of season and, and just so that we've got it clear in our heads how long is a season in terms of saturn i mean we we have two equinox a year i think don't we um in in terms of, do, um, yes. of our rotation <clears throat> around yeah what what about saturn what's what's the time frame with with saturn because i heard you talking in years so yes that's right so here yes you're quite right so here on earth as we go from one solstice to the equinox to the other solstice and back to the equinox um, each of those seasons is three months, of course, because you're dividing the, our year into a quarter. On Saturn, Saturn's year is, is about 29 of our Earth years. And so the seasons last roughly seven years, a little bit more than seven years. So the, as I said, the, um, the, sol the equinox was in 2009, uh, and the, the um, summer solstice will, will actually be in 2017. That's a little bit longer. Um, the seasons change, they're slightly unequal in length due to the, the fact that Saturn's orbit is not perfectly circular, and that's why you get this inequality. Mm. Um, on, on the Earth, we have a similar thing, but it's only a matter of a day or so. Yeah. Um, the the inequalities. Yeah. And Cassini still operating? Is it still sending back data? Yes, it is. Uh, its mission, uh, which has been running since 2003, when it sort of... Uh, uh, got near Saturn. Uh, it's a fantastic mission. Um, it will come to an end in 2017, uh, and the spacecraft is actually going. To, it's in orbit around Saturn, and what the mission planners have, uh, have got uh, their intention is to become more and more bold in their exploration of Saturn's rings. And in fact, the last few orbits of Cassini 
will pass between the rings and the planet. So we'll get really close-up views of Saturn's cloud belts, close-up views of the ring system from the inside rather than looking at them always from the outside. And eventually uh, Cassini will, be, uh, will plunge into Saturn's atmosphere where it will very quickly burn up. Um, the idea is not to leave debris around in the solar system, uh, particularly in, on Saturn because some of Saturn's moons are thought to be possible places where living organisms could, could exist. And so what you don't want to do is have risk, risk crashing a spacecraft onto one of those moons where any stray terrestrial bacteria that are still around on Cassini um, could actually start a new life there and contaminate the moons of Saturn. So uh, the spacecraft will, will be destroyed um, and that's probably a good outcome. Yeah, we're pretty good at that too, yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's right. ESA, <laughs> Not always intentionally. <laughs> now, ESA, the European Space Agency, they're much better at it than everyone else. They they look at destroying the vehicle before the mission, which <laughs> which they did last that's week. Correct. Um, but uh, yes, um, we we've sent a lot of trash into space, unfortunately, and there's a lot of it still lying around on the moon, as we know. Mm. Uh, you're listening to Space Nuts, Fred Watson with Andrew Dunkley. Space Nuts. Finally this week, Fred, we're, we're still out into the deep solar system. We're looking at uh, Uranus, or Uranus as some people call it, and then giggle. Uh, it's it's a, a planet that we, we tend not to really focus on as much as uh, the other um, giant planets in the, the outer solar system, uh, We've just been talking about Saturn. We talk about Jupiter a lot because it's such a spectacular planet. Uranus seems to be a little bit more mysterious and less exciting for some reason, but uh, it's in the news now because uh, it seems to be hoarding moons. Yeah, that's right. Um, the, this is not a discovery uh, that we're reporting at the moment uh, here, Andrew, but uh, a, uh, it's a, a suspicion. Hint. It's more of a hint, a suspicion, that's mm. right. And what it comes from is, well, the fact that, um, as um, I, I guess many people know, uh, Uranus not only has moons, in fact, we have 27 known moons of Uranus, which is uh, rather more than when I was a kid. I think it was thought to have four moons when I was a kid. But, of course, the... The, the, the Voyager space missions of the 1970s um, uh, basically rewrote the textbooks as far as how many, uh, how many uh, moons the outer planets have. And in fact, it was Voyager 2 that, uh, that passed by Uranus. Uh, I think it was around about 1986 when the flyby took place. And that allowed us to look closely at, uh, at the moons uh, of Uranus, uh, as well as the planet itself. And of course, the the the, the fact that um, that we 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 we've known since 1977 that Uranus has a ring system, uh, uh, not anywhere near as as elegant as the one around Saturn, nowhere near as prominent, uh, but there nevertheless quite narrow rings, in fact, of debris around Uranus. Um, as an aside here, uh, Andrew, there's a suspicion that those rings might have been glimpsed by the man who discovered Uranus, uh, William Herschel, who discovered Uranus on the 13th of March, 1781. Um, there is a note in one of his records, um, it's a long time since I checked up on this, but um, it seems to suggest that he saw something, uh, glimpsed something that may well have been a, a part of the, of the ring system. And uh, that is 
very interesting because it means the rings may um, have been brighter back in the 18th century than they are now uh, to allow somebody with a with a telescope it was a big telescope but it was nevertheless small by modern standards uh, to see with the naked with the with the eye rather than with photographs or anything like that to see a hint of these rings he wrote something in one of his journals that is a suggestion that maybe he glimpsed the ring he didn't think he didn't he never suspected that there was a ring around uranus but he, he thought he saw some something that he didn't understand so maybe uh, we knew about these rings a long time before 1977 nevertheless the rings are there they're uh, obvious on images made, for example, with the Hubble Space Telescope, um, which actually can send back really quite elegant views of, of uh, the planet Uranus. But uh, what has now happened is some students actually at the University of Idaho have reanalyzed the, the 1980s data, uh, the images uh, sent back by Voyager 2, when it was flying by Uranus. And what they've seen are um, what we call, uh, there's a technical term for this, they're moonlit wakes. Oh. <laughs> so it's a wake as in the wake of a ship, uh, not the wake at a funeral, it's the wake of a ship. And it's caused by moonlets, which are tiny moons embedded within the rings that's the the idea of these things we see them in saturn Cassini, the spacecraft we were talking about a few minutes ago has seen these moonlit wakes very clearly because there are uh, moons tiny moons embedded in some of the rings of saturn and so the suggestion is these moonlit wakes that uh, may have been discovered in the ring rings of uranus they could betray the presence of tiny moons uh, embedded in the rings um maybe no more than 10, 15 kilometers in diameter, tiny worlds that would be completely invisible from the Earth because they're so small. But the, the wakes that they leave behind them in the rings are the, are the smoking gun uh, that suggests that they exist. And it may solve one of the problems about uh, Uranus because scientists have wondered why Uranus's rings are so narrow, why they're so well-defined. And um, it's a problem that doesn't really have a, a solution. And it may well be that it's the, these moonlets, these tiny moons that may exist uh, in the rings of Uranus. It, might, it may well be that they are sort of shepherding the ring particles because the rings are just made of, of tiny uh, particles of rock and ice. Um, those ring particles may be being gravitationally pulled together by, by the effect of these moonlets. So it could be a problem that has now been solved. Mm. However, um, how do you find them? How do you find these moons or the moonlets? The best bet is probably the Hubble telescope. In fact, it's the only bet, really, that um, will, I think, uh, be giving time soon to this project so that people can actually have a closer look at the rings. But if they don't find them, then it may well be that uh, one day we send another spacecraft uh, out towards Uranus and find them that way. But that's quite a long way down the track. Are they big enough to be named? Uh, they probably would be given a number to start with. But um, Uranus is, is actually unique among the solar system in that its moons are actually named after Shakespearean characters. It's usually mythological figures that, um, you know, the moons uh, of the planet 
planets are named after. Uh, but Shakespearean characters are the ones around around Uranus. And maybe some minor Shakespearean players will find their names being given to these moonlets. So we don't know that, but maybe it would happen. Yeah, fascinating. It's also an unusual planet because it um, it's flipped over, isn't it? Is that the right one? That, yes, that's right. So Uranus is, um, you know, there's a well, one of the questions I was once asked on, on radio, which found its way uh, into a book I wrote and actually became the title of the book, why is Uranus upside down? Um, it, it's not actually upside down. It's, it's more better to describe it as being on its side. It's tipped over from the vertical by 98 degrees. And what that means is that it's, its north pole points slightly below the plane of its orbit. So in that sense... It is upside down. It's pointing eight degrees below the plane of its orbit. Uh, so it's flipped over. We don't know why that is, Andrew. The best bet is that in the early uh, in the early history of the solar system, there was a collision that tipped over Uranus like that. It's not unique. Venus has also a similarly uh, uh, pathological uh, inclination in its orbit. But Uranus is uh, is the one that everybody thinks of because the question, why is Uranus upside down? Always gets a giggle. Yes, yes, indeed. It, uh, well, there's all sorts of jokes you can centre around Uranus, and um, you know, solving the problems of that planet are really quite simple. Eat more fibre. So um, <laughs> they just they just. Well, go. I always think you know um, Herschel, Herschel who discovered Uranus, he wanted to call it George. Uh, which right. is a much better name. Georgium <laughs> uh, Sidus was what he wanted to call it, the Georgian star, to name it after the king. But nobody liked that because the king was a bit loopy. And it was a man called Johannes Bode, who was a German astronomer, who said uh, we should call it uh, Uranus, which is how it's termed in, in German, but it translates rather badly into English. It does indeed, yes, and we'll <laughs> leave it there. And wipe the slate clean <laughs> and start again next week, Fred. <laughs> thanks, thanks so much for your company. It's a great pleasure, Andrew. Always good to talk to you. And we'll catch you next time. Fred Watson from the Australian Astring, uh, Astronomical Observatory joining me on Space Nuts. And don't forget to um, listen to Space Time with Stuart Gary, another podcast uh, on offer through uh, our stable. So keep an eye out for that. Very, very popular. Stuart's a terrific bloke and uh, you'll really enjoy his observations of uh, life, the universe and everything. Uh, and don't forget to follow us on Facebook. Send us your notes and messages. We love to hear from you. If you've got any questions for Fred, he won't answer them, but you can still ask. And uh, we will catch you next time on Space Nuts. Space Nuts. You've been listening to the Space Nuts podcast. Subscribe to the full podcast on iTunes, Audioboom and Stitcher or your favourite podcast distributor. This has been another quality podcast production from Fights.com. From Audioboom comes Covert, a new podcast that delves into the murky world of spies, soldiers, and top-secret military operations. I'm Jamie Rennell, and together we'll discover the real stories of history's greatest classified missions, told by the operatives, soldiers, and journalists who experienced it firsthand. Follow Covert on Spotify or subscribe now on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorite shows.